0: These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look.
1: Greetings, good Sunday morning to you. Welcome to Coffee with Jeff, the podcast in which I find a subject I would like to know more about and then write it into what I hope turns into an engaging story. This is episode 220, and on this episode... I am presenting the very incomplete story of the Salem Witch Trials from 1692 to 1693. The information I provide will be a 30-minute overview on a subject that would take hours, if not days, to really cover completely. It's the story of injustice and paranoia to a group of people whose lives weren't turning out the way they had hoped. Friends and family would turn on one another to awful consequences. So let's get into it, The Salem Witch Trials. So it occurred to me not too long ago that I know very little about the Salem Witch Trials when I started looking into it a couple of things caught my interest first what was going on with those so called inflicted people who were showing such bizarre behavior starting with a few young girls age 9 and 11 who if you believe what was written at the time acted in a very unnatural way screaming and contorting and such what was going on Were they faking? Were they poisoned? Mentally ill? And what about the confessions? Assuming there was no such thing as witches, why did some people confess to being a witch? And how did it end? The whole event lasted a little more than a year before, as they say, the people of this Massachusetts colony came to their senses. Of course, that was before 19 were hung, 5 died in jail, and one was pressed to death by rocks. Now, after weeks of research, I realize that there's still a ton of information that I don't know or understand. The witch trials are far more complicated than I could have imagined. The question of how it all started, what caused the young girls to act in such strange ways, is still unclear. But you know, that's why every year a book or two is released on the subject. Your local library probably has a whole shelf of books just on Salem and the witch trials. And if some of the world's greatest historians who have written large books on the subject still aren't sure of the exact cause, what hope do I have in my little podcast? But I did learn a few things that I'm going to share with you today. Here it goes. No witches were burned at the stake. And the girl's behavior was not brought on by ergot poisoning. These are two myths that still get repeated today. But one of the more bizarre facts I learned was that the people who were executed were not hung because they were witches. They were hung because they refused to admit they were witches. And they refused to name names. Every single person who confessed to be in league with the devil survived. All one had to do to escape the gallows is just say, yep, I'm a witch and so is my mother. Of course, it's sort of a catch-22 thing, right? I mean, if folks were hung for admitting that they were witches, then no one would admit it. And if we kill those who deny it, it'll encourage those that are witches to confess. The catch here is that there's no way to be found innocent. And not a single person was. The first question is why the first two girls, Betty Paris, who was nine, and her cousin, Abigail Williams, 11, began acting so strange. They woke up one day shrieking with their bodies bending in abnormal ways. This behavior would come and go, and soon others began doing the same thing. The cause of the later inflicted could be explained by a mass hysteria, or in some cases just plain faking, but those first two, I'm not sure, and well, neither is anybody. That's a mystery, and from what I read, no one fully agrees on the cause, even today. The first thing we need to understand was that witches were a real thing to the people in the 17th century. Very real. It scared the crap out of them. When things went wrong, Failing crops, strange diseases, wars, especially those that they were losing, horrible weather, and generally anything else with no logical explanation, it had to be the devil's doing. And all of that was going on at Salem at the time. I mean, for lack of a better expression, it might be what you call a perfect storm. There wasn't one single cause of the Salem Witch Trials. Shortly before their outburst, Betty and Abigail, with possibly a friend or two, had been sneaking off and playing a game. They were attempting to look into the future to determine their future husbands and social status. One technique they used was called a Venus glass. It worked like this by separating the egg whites from the yolks and then dropping the egg whites into a glass of water, one could see the future. If, for instance, The egg white ended up looking like a ship. Your future husband would be a sailor. If it looked like a plow, your husband would be a farmer and such. Now this sounds like harmless fun. Like using an Ouija board. But not to the Puritans in New England. Any kind of fortune telling was through the work of the devil. God did not predict the future. And considering Betty's father was Reverend Samuel Parris of Salem Village... A man who had been preaching repeatedly on how Satan was in their midst. Who knows what effect this might have had on the young children's minds. Now the reverend was talking about Satan more than usual because things weren't going right for the settlers. The Puritans were a highly conservative religious movement. They had come from England decades earlier to the new world to create a utopia. It was to be the perfect society that followed the literal word of the Bible. But things hadn't gone well. Has the idea of a utopian society ever turned out well? Anyway, Salem Village was really an unhappy place. People were arguing over land and religion, and of course money. To show how bad things were, they were on their fourth reverend in under 20 years. Most communities had one reverend that would stay at the church for their whole life, for 30, 40, 50 years, but in Salem, because of infighting and money issues, they often failed to pay the religious leaders. At the time of the girls' outburst, Reverend Paris was no longer getting paid by the community. The village was not only having money problems, they were also scared. One of the problems they were facing was their war with the Native Americans, whom they called Indians. They had teamed up with the French for a bloody war. The war with the Indians and the French was getting ugly. Now to the Puritans, the dark-skinned Native people, who didn't believe the Puritans' version of religion, were in league with the devil. And I don't think it's any coincidence that the first person to be accused of witchcraft was Tichuba, an enslaved South American Indian woman from the West Indies. Tichuba would end up confessing to being a witch, but probably only after severe beatings. As you might expect, the Native Americans, who had lived there for thousands of years, weren't happy with the Europeans taking over their land, killing and enslaving their people and such. To the Puritans, the Native Americans didn't cultivate the land, therefore they had no right to it. The Native Americans responded by attacking settlements of the north of Salem, in the Maine area. Many residents of the Salem area were refugees from the north who had witnessed their villages being burnt to the ground and most of their family and friends butchered. One such case was Mercy Lewis, whose village in Falmouth, Maine was attacked. The 14-year-old witnessed both her parents being killed along with her grandparents, aunts, uncles, and most of her cousins. The orphan was put in care of Reverend George Burroughs, who we'll talk about later, and would become one of the witnesses at the trials. One could only imagine what effects experiences like this could have had on a 14-year-old's brain. And there were many in Salem who were in similar situations. These young women who, at one time, had an expectation of a normal life, to grow up, get married, and have a family of their own. But now they had nothing. Their lives were ruined. They would spend the rest of their lives as servants to those who had taken them in. Any chance for a happy life was done. Not to mention that many had what we would call today PTSD. And even if the children of Salem didn't personally witness the horrors of war, They certainly heard the stories from those who did. Everybody had to be thinking it was only a matter of time before they would be attacked. And of course, it was all the devil's doing. And the children of Salem, for the most part, weren't allowed to be children. They were to be seen, not heard. By the time they were in their young teens, they were expected to be hardworking, well-behaved, proper church-going citizens. That's a lot of pressure for young minds. Now at the time, New England was in the midst of the coldest weather in 500 years, causing crops to fail, which led to starvation and inflation. To many, it seemed like Satan was winning and the great utopian experiment would fail. Soon they would be on ships headed back to England. When you take all this into account, starvation and inflation, infighting among citizens, the threat of an attack at any moment, The expectations of not acting like a child, the games you play thought to be evil, that's a lot to put on the shoulders of an eight-year-old. Something had to give. And one must remember that this was at a time when the beating of women and children were a regular form of punishment. And when you add to that that the Paris household was run by a strict preacher who would constantly talk about how the devil had invaded their community, it's understandable that a young mind might just break. There is something that we understand today that we call mass conversion disorder. This is when pressure gets to be so much that people's brains just can't handle it anymore, and their inner turmoil gets converted into physical actions. They snap and begin to act crazy, uncontrollably weird. It isn't faking or acting. It's basically temporary madness. This is what many believe happened to the first couple girls. Yet I still wonder why it happened to both girls at the same time. Or was it just one girl and the other just went along for the ride? I can't say what actually happened. I don't think anybody can. But when this odd behavior began to happen to the children in Reverend Paris' home... The experts told him that they were under the influence by somebody who was bewitched. Suspicions quickly fell on the black slave Tichiba. Tichiba would eventually, after I'm sure some painful encouragement, name names, picking out a few outcasts in the village, Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne. And since the Puritans followed the Bible strictly, and the Bible clearly stated, Thou shall not suffer a witch to live, the penalty was obvious. Yet, like I said, in Salem, it was only those who didn't confess that died. But why would people confess? Why would a friend turn on a friend or a family member? Well, you have to understand what they went through. When accused, you were put into shackles, stripped naked to look for devil's teats. Then you were locked into a Horrible, dark, dirty, small jail that provided no heat or air conditioning or sanitation. It would be freezing cold in the winter and broiling hot in the summer. One of the first accused was Sarah Good. She was pregnant and locked up along with her four-year-old daughter, Dorothy. Dorothy, you see, had to be locked up because, well, if the mother was a witch, she probably was one too. They believed that witchcraft ran in families. The child would end up going insane. Sarah would give birth, but the child died shortly after, probably due to malnutrition from the harsh conditions of imprisonment. Five would end up dead due to the awful prison conditions. Now, if the trial happened almost immediately, this might have been over quick. But there was a problem. Salem Village had lost their charter. They were waiting for a new charter and a governor. And they couldn't do a thing till this happened. Therefore, those first few arrested had to spend months in jail waiting. This made matters worse. As time went on, fear and suspicion among the residents slowly grew. And if things weren't bad enough, here's one more interesting fact about the jails in Salem. When you were in those jails, you were expected to pay for the privilege of being there a daily rate. And you even had to pay for your own meals. Usually this was done through family members. Now the trial, if you could call it that, was horrible. The accused wasn't allowed legal representation. And many of those who were brought before the trial had no idea how to act. They had no lawyers to help. And they were considered guilty until they were proven innocent. It would start off with questions like, What evil spirits have you been familiar with? And why do you hurt these children? The court was basically saying, We know you're a witch. Just tell us why. Spectral evidence was allowed as legal evidence. What spectral evidence? Well, let's say you're on the stand and you're trying to defend yourself or prove your innocence or whatever. Then some woman or child in the audience starts flopping around and moaning. Screaming, pointing at you, saying that you are causing them pain. Well, you're sitting on the stand 20 feet away. Well, the court believed that there was some sort of apparition sent by you to attack the girls. Only those that were being attacked could see it. It was almost like there was a second you, invisible to everyone but the inflicted, who was doing the damage. This was allowed in court as proof of your guilt. And you know what? It had to be, because without that, there was no way to prove somebody was a witch. Now, after Betty and Abigail, more began to act the same, screaming and convulsing, and, of course, pointing out the guilty. What was going on there? Since all the children were constantly together, some think it was mass hysteria. Children just joining in. But many of these young women were refugees of the French-Indian War, Like I said, they once had prospects of a good life, but now they were nothing more than servants for the families that took them in. Many were ignored and beaten. Suddenly, they were the center of attention. People actually showed concern for them. They would say things like, poor child, what has inflicted you? And it's no coincidence that many of these accused their abusive masters as being witches. And remember, this was a day and age when husbands, the master of the house, were legally allowed to beat women, children, and servants. Were these accusers lying? Probably some, but others most likely believed in what they were saying. And then, horribly, there was the execution. Those that refused to admit that they were witches were hung, but not a quick drop-hanging. You see, in a usual hanging, the body falls and the snap of the rope quickly breaks the neck, causing almost instant death. But in Salem, the poor souls were just sort of pushed off a ladder. Their death was a slow strangulation. Spectators would stand and watch as the victims slowly and painfully swung back and forth, choking, attempting to breathe with an awful sound as the life slowly left their body. So when you take all that into account, it's surprising that anyone was hung. I mean, knowing that and still refusing to confess or name names, that's incredible. I'm not sure if I could be brave enough to stick with my ideals and be hung. In all, 19 were executed by hanging. 14 women and 5 men. I think that what I got most out of my research is... That there were those who would rather die and tell the truth than make up a story and get off light. Which is just astounding to me. And you know, not everybody in Salem believed in the witch trials. In fact, the community was probably split down the middle of believers and non-believers. But like in many of these situations, many who realized that this was all crap failed to speak up in fear they might be accused themselves. And, of course, there were those that took advantage of the witch hunt. One such man was Thomas Putman. He and his family were behind 181 accusations of witchcraft. Many of those that were accused by the family were those who the family believed had done them wrong. You didn't want to get on the Putman's bad side. One such man was 42-year-old George Burroughs. George Burroughs was a Harvard graduate and a non-ordained minister. He was very intelligent, handsome, strong, and abusive. But George's problems started years before the trials. He was the minister of Salem Village from 1680 to 1683, but like Reverend Parris, had trouble getting paid. When his wife unexpectedly died in 1681, he had no money to pay for the funeral he borrowed the money from Thomas Putman. But he was unable to pay the money back because, well, he had no income. He ended up being taken to court by the Putmans because he failed to pay back the money. The Putmans never forgave him for this. He ended up leaving Salem and went to Falmouth, which is now Portland, Maine, where he survived a couple of horrific Native American attacks. In April 1962, he was still living in Maine, when he was arrested and taken back to Salem, accused of being a witch by the Putman family. and the young daughter of Putman, claimed that the invisible specter of George Burroughs came to her in the night. He told her that he was the leader of the witches. She also claimed that his first two wives came to her and said that he had killed them both, and he had also killed the preacher in Salem that was there before him. He bewitched the soldiers that were fighting the Indians, which explained why they were losing and why he survived the attacks, as if he had some inside knowledge. Now, George Burroughs wasn't liked in Salem, and many believed he was just the kind of guy that was moving the community away from the Puritan ways. So many testified against him, including Mercy Lewis, the young girl who had survived the Native American attack that I spoke about earlier. She had lived with Burroughs for a while, but now was the maid to the Putmans. At the trial, he remained defiant about the whole proceedings, claiming his innocence. He even went so far to claim he didn't believe in witches or evil specters. This was considered blasphemous, and he was found guilty. At his hanging, he did something unexpected. He stood with the rope around his neck and after claiming his innocence one last time, he began reciting the Lord's Prayer flawlessly. This was something a person under the devil's control wasn't supposed to be able to do. The crowd gasped in horror. One eyewitness to the execution, Robert Califf, described the events in his book, More Wonders of the Invisible World. Mr. Burroughs was carried in a cart with others through the streets of Salem to execution. When he was upon the ladder, he made a speech for the clearing of his innocence, with such solemn and serious expression as were the admiration of all present. His prayer, which concluded by repeating the Lord's Prayer, was so well-worded and uttered with such composedness and such, at least seemingly, fervency of spirit, as was very affecting and drew tears from many. So it seemed to some that the spectators would hinder the execution." For a moment, it seemed the crowd wanted to free Burroughs. But then Reverend Cotton Mathers, who had come to Boston to witness the execution, told the spectators, the devil has often been transformed into an angel of light. And the execution went on. But the seeds of doubt about what was going on were starting to take hold. And then there was the case of Giles and Martha Corey. Giles Corey had been born in England, but eventually made his way to North America. He lived in Salem Village and worked as a farmer. He was doing well and had just taken his third wife, Martha. Giles was 80 when he married Martha, and while Martha's age is unknown, court records say she was younger than her husband, but not a young woman. Some sources list her age as 70 at the time of the couple's marriage. The reason for the marriage might have been that Giles, who had a checkered past, wanted to be accepted into the Salem church as Martha had been a full member of the village church since 1690. You see, 17 years earlier, Giles had beaten a man for stealing apples. The man died of his injuries, but Giles was found not guilty of murder and only paid a fine. Now when the first three women, who were a slave, a beggar, and an invalid, were accused, Giles wanted to watch the proceedings, but Martha, his wife, didn't want him to go and even took the saddle off the horse and tried to stop him. Giles went anyway. Martha had her doubts about the whole thing. Martha would eventually be formally accused of being a witch. This might have been because she tried to prevent Giles from going and that she had spoken about her opposition to the witch hunt. But whatever the case was, Giles was so swept up in the proceedings that, for a while, he believed the charges against his wife. Soon after, however... Several women accused Giles of witchcraft, and he was arrested. It was then, it is thought, that he realized the truth about what was going on. He denied the accusations, and then openly became defiant over the proceedings. He refused to say anything further, and this really pissed off the court, and they decided to force him to plead. They stripped him naked, laid him on the ground, placed boards on his chest... And then on top of the boards, they began to stack heavy rocks. For two days, the 80 year old lay on the ground with heavier and heavier rocks being stacked on top. At one point, allegedly, he was asked if he was ready to plead, and he said, More weight. And to think, all he had to do was plead guilty, but stood by his principles and let himself be pressed to death. His wife, Martha, who was a faithful churchgoer, also refused to confess, so she was hung three days later. Seven others were hung on that day, all of them refusing to confess and name names. And it was because of things like this that those that had been silent for so long started to openly talk about their opposition to the witch hunt. It took many people who would rather hang to death rather than to lie and save themselves that turned the tide. And the thing was, the first three to be accused were Sarah Good, a homeless woman, Sarah Osborne, a non-churchgoer and outcast, and Tichaba, a slave. But a year later, respectable, devoted churchgoers like Rebecca Nurse, who was a 71-year-old grandmother and was very active in the church, was sentenced to death. It was seen respectable people like Rebecca Nurse and others being hung that finally got people to say, Hey, this has gone far enough. And besides, all the local jails from Salem to Boston were filled to their capacity with people waiting trial. Finally, spectral evidence was made inadmissible in court, which made it impossible to prove somebody was a witch. The trials came to an end. For Rebecca Nurse, she was fully exonerated less than 20 years after her hanging. (coughs) a little bit before I go. First, I want to apologize for not having a show two weeks ago. The thing is, I was working on this very story and was a bit overwhelmed by its complexity. I'm still really not happy with the way it turned out, but I wanted to move on. And last week, to be honest, my real job, work, has been crushing me lately, so I I had to put it off. Here's one thing I thought was amusing during my research. I was looking on YouTube for any information I could find, and I found many short videos, around 10 minutes or shorter, that said the truth about the Salem witch trials. What really went on during the Salem witch trials? And I'm like, I just talked for almost 30 minutes, and I barely scratched the surface. How do these people think they can tell it in 5 to 10 minutes? Crazy. I didn't watch any of them. But much of the information I used for the story came from a few lectures on the Salem Witch Trials by Salem State Professor of History Emerson Tad Baker. To me, he was a man who really seemed like he did his homework, so I listened to him a lot. Now, for those of you who read or have seen The Crucible and think you know the story of the Salem Witch Trials, Baker said of the story, It's a great play, but horrible history. And listen, I'm sure some experts out there might hear this and will say, you got this wrong, or you didn't include this, or what about that? I get it. There's a reason why hundreds of books have been written on the subject since 1692. And you know, I could have done an hour or two on any one of the victims, or accusers, or whatever. There was the story of Anne Glover whom I didn't even mention, who was executed for being a witch years earlier. And maybe I'll do her story on a future podcast, I don't know, but there was only so much I could include. But you know, one of the most important aspects of the trial, in my mind, is that it really showed the importance of the separation of church and state. Anyway, how about the ending credits? have been listening to coffee with jeff a zeus brothers entertainment podcast i thank you for listening you know this show takes money to produce and make available if you'd like to help me out if you could afford a few coins just go to my website and look for the patreon link at the top my website is coffee with jeff all one word and why don't you tell your friends about it you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason You can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word, and I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Your story ideas are always welcome. I'm always looking for new story ideas. And links to all the sources that I used to write today's episode, including Tad Baker's lectures, are available at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. Again, you can find the links at my website, I'd like to thank my wife of 36 years for being my wife of 36 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those that reposted on social media. You have a special place in my heart. Take care, remain healthy, and I'll be back in two weeks. Hopefully. Bye.
0: Want coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee want coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff.